Act of the Four Gospels. It's the first of two volumes written by Luke, this and the Acts of the Apostle. And basically to establish his credibility, he was an Asian, or an Asian Christian who had a great interest in writing down and capturing the account. He tells at the very opening verses that his intent was to write an orderly account, to have something credible that isn't about stories and fables, but is the story of God breaking into human history. But he's not simply writing as a historian. He's writing with a keen eye on who Jesus was. And he has a particular way of wanting to present the message. Firstly, he wanted to present the message of the gospel that Jesus was the friend of outcasts. What one guy used to call ragamuffins. Jesus loved ragamuffins. It was the religious people that he struggled with. He was a Gentile doctor, and he was writing for Gentiles, non-Jews. He talks a lot about Jesus' dealings with Gentiles, lepers, and all sorts of medical outcasts, despised tax collectors. He got all the stories in there, many others. And we meet Jesus, who broke through the boundaries of acceptable religious life and society, and who transformed others. But as much as he's a Gentile, what we'll find as we get into this gospel is that he also acknowledges the Jewish roots of the Christian faith and the place of the temple. So he says that Jesus is reaching out way beyond the Jewish community. But he was a Jew. And he came also for his own people. And Luke emphasized the Jewishness both of Christ and the Jewish roots of the early church. His gospel starts with Zechariah, John the Baptist's dad in the temple. He quotes Mary's song with its link to Hannah's prayer that we had in 1 Samuel in our service this morning. And he recounts two incidents in the light life of Jesus set in the temple. He closes the account of his gospel with the disciples staying continually at the temple praising God. So we're going to look tonight at the Gospel of Luke, but Sue's going to bring us, because we're going to jump from the beginning right into chapter 3, and Sue will read it for us. So it's Luke chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Eturia and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, and the rough ways smooth. 
and all mankind will see God's salvation. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Oh, and do not begin to say to me, Oh, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, The man with two tunics should share with him who has none. And the one who has food should do the same. Tax collectors also came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Christ. But John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come. The thongs of whose sandals I'm not even worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and preached the good news to them. But when John rebuked Herod, the Tetrarch, because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things that he had done, well, Herod added this to them. He had John locked up in prison. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that Luke was a really clever guy. Thank you that he was someone who really paid attention to what he was writing down in this, his third gospel, and also in the book of Acts. Thank you that as bright and as clever as he was, thank you that he had a very simple grasp on the truth, that you came for outcasts and sinners, that you came for ragamuffins, that you came for the likes of us. And we pray that as we get our head and heart into Luke's gospel, we pray, Lord, that we might be captured by the knowledge that you went so far to draw us close to you. Show us what it means, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Right then, I'd like to start by going right back in the annals of history, 
right back to show the earliest days of Aldridge Youth Fellowship and its original members. Not that one. These guys. When they were in YF, Rob Cook was still in short trousers. Their names are Copernicus and Galileo. And up until 450 years ago, everybody believed that the universe and the suns and the planets revolved around the earth. Then in 1543, the good-looking guy with the dark hair there, Copernicus, told them that the earth wasn't the center of the universe. Fifty years later, Galileo said that the planets revolved around the sun. The wider church was so opposed to what he said, they threw him out. The very idea that we aren't the center of the universe was unthinkable. God had a very important lesson in what these guys said. The world doesn't revolve around you and me. God's priority isn't my comfort or yours, my happiness or pleasure. If God existed to please you and me, then why aren't we happier all the time? He must exist for another reason and have another purpose. The truth is, it's not all about me or you. It's all about God. And as I tried to say to Wednesday worship, to actually talk about longing to glory in God is something that I think is just a bit of jargon that Christians throw around. But it's to be preoccupied with what matters to God. And I say all this tonight because as we get into Luke's gospel, I want to introduce you to an important man, a figure that straddles the Old Testament and the New Testament. There hadn't been a prophetic word for centuries. And a guy comes onto the scene that looked back at what God promised, but now saw himself at a, an apex in history and saw something new coming. He was one who spent his entire life pointing people away from himself towards someone else. And this man was called John the Baptist. John seems to be the link between the Old Testament and the New. He was steeped in Old Testament scripture. And whereas many of the Old Testament prophets spoke of someone who was to come and bring salvation, this guy, this John the Baptist, saw it happening. And one day as his cousin Jesus walks towards him, he says, behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. It seems that John recognized in his relative something special about Jesus, even before either of them were born. When in Luke chapter 1, Mary greeted Elizabeth, her cousin, John, in Elizabeth's womb, leapt, it said. And from the very beginning, John recognized his own role to prepare for the Christ, the Messiah. The Gospels tell us that John dressed in clothes made of camel's hair and ate locusts and wild honey. This was the guy from whom they learned all about bush tucker. 
I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. If we were to see someone who behaved like that today on the streets of Aldridge, we'd have them locked up. But this was John's way of marking his reaction against the self-indulgence of his own people and his own time. John challenges us then not to live as he did, but to live as simply as we can. Sometimes, you know, God's best friends are just a bit weird. You might have met one or two. But if they're weird because they're just strange people, that's one thing. But if their lifestyle stands out as something that just challenges what you and I like to take for granted, bring on the weird ones. Bring on the weird ones who make us more comfortable Christians just a little bit less comfortable. John understood his vocation in life. He was in no doubt that the Christ, the Messiah, was about to appear and he knew that his ministry was to prepare the way for him. John lived to deflect attention from himself toward Jesus. And with John the Baptist, we also are, if you like, to have a vocation like the moon. The moon does not have any light of its own. It reflects the light of the sun. And Christians are to be sun reflectors. That was John's calling. We are to reflect the Lord Jesus. We're to bounce around the light of Jesus in our lives. And not in church, but in the communities and the front lines that we call daily life. So listen to how St. Paul, much later, described it. He said that we can be mirrors that can lightly, brightly reflect the glory of the Lord. And as the Spirit of the Lord works within us, we become more and more like him and reflect his glory more and more. And I tried last Wednesday to uncover what glory looks like. It is the revealing of God's nature in a way that makes people who don't know him hungry. I want to ask you, when you're in the presence of your non-Christian friends, are they repelled? Are they encouraged? Or do they see in you something that even if they've not got the courage to pursue it, they want to know this Jesus that is shaping your life? Now, how did John the Baptist do all that? Well, let's look at verses 3 to 7. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked road shall become straight, the rough way smooth, and all the people will see God's salvation. And then he goes on as if to spoil it. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. In John's day, when someone important was coming, people would literally sweep the roads. And today, if someone comes to visit us, we normally, especially if you're Mrs. Coyne, we always clean up. We always know when somebody's coming because of the way Sue's busy in around the house. 
were ready to welcome them and to show them care and love. And John was quite clear that in order to prepare the way for Christ to come, the people had to clean up and sweep up. Their hearts had to be cleaned and swept. Their lives had to be cleaned and swept. Their minds had to be cleaned and swept in order to make them ready for the Christ. So he preached, this is a religious word now, he preached a gospel of repentance, which is very central to Luke's message. And he meant business. Not only is that said for us in Luke 3, 10 to 14, but Jesus in his great commission right at the end of Luke's gospel makes it clear that the roots of the idea of repentance come from the Old Testament. It involves, if you get back to the old language, a kind of change of mind, but that falls apart. It's not about a change of mind. It involves a turning, an attitude that brings a change of direction. And on this point, Jesus and John echo one another. A walk with God involves a change of direction. It means submission to God and a turnaround. So here's my question for you tonight. If you are a Christian here tonight, what signs are there that currently your life has been turned around? That's not quite the same as inviting Jesus into your life and carry on as things before. Repentance involves facing a new direction. When the early Christians, the very first Christians, were being baptized, they firstly faced west and confessed their sins. And then just before baptism, they turned east to demonstrate that coming to Christ involves, fancy word, repentance. Real meaning, life facing a new direction. So what evidence can my non-Christian friend see that my life is surrendered to God and has in some way, some deep way, been and being turned around? So repentance means two things. It means looking backwards, that can sound a bit negative, and looking forwards. Looking back at the things that have got in the way of me and God and keep on getting shut of them. John had no time for all those people who just said they were sorry and didn't mean it in their heart. So, like every good Church of England preacher, he stood up in front of his congregation that Sunday morning and said, you brood of vipers. How long do you think I'd last in Aldridge with that kind of preaching, eh? These people had heard John's message that the Messiah was at hand and seemed worried about it. So what did they do? Like all good, respectable people, they thought we better do something. We better look busy. He keeps talking about this baptism. So we better be baptized by John the Baptist. But John recognized much of what they did was unreal. And they forgot that the spirit of God's law was a spirit of love and transformation. And Jesus recognized that in spite of the fact that people were following him out into the wilderness to being baptized, they were just going through the motions. They were just being done. They thought that because they were descendants of Abraham, so he's doing his Jewish bit now, that they would be okay. But John told them in no uncertain terms that that was never going to be enough. 
And he then dropped the bombshell that Jesus models so much that actually Jesus seemed to prefer the outcasts, the sinners, and what Brennan Manning called the ragamuffins. <laughs> Salvation, another technical word, is to do with mercy and compassion, with what is going on in the heart and what changes our lives. And John was surrounded by religious people, Pharisees and Sadducees. If they'd been truly sorry for the things they'd done wrong, it would have shown in the way they lived. They would have literally have changed tracks. Yet in Luke 3, 8 to 14, John gives us clear examples, positively, of what happens when Christ transforms a life. People he says, must share the good things they have, clothes and food, as a sign of the kingdom coming. They must be honest in whatever job they had to do. Tax collectors must ask no more than is right, and soldiers must not use force or violence to get money and must be content with their wages. John teaches us then about our need for true repentance, an honest looking back at our lives, what we have done wrong, and then a commitment to being changed and transformed. And that is not easy. Facing up to things that we've done wrong in the past can take great courage, and because it involves changing tracks. Now, I have been for a, Christ, a Christian for so long that if I look too closely at what the years have meant, I can see the toing and froing of my life falling into the same traps time and again. And God understands the messiness of my life. But he does say to me constantly, John, when are we going to deal with this? <laughs> when are we going to move in that new direction and turn around? And that's why there is a looking forwards. Changing tracks and committing ourselves to become more Christ-like means becoming a people characterized by this generosity, mercy, compassion, honesty, satisfied that the good things we have, dis dissatisfied with them and ready to challenge injustice. It takes courage. And so as I close, three things we learn from John the Baptist. John the Baptist had been teaching us about life-changing repentance. And then here in Luke 3, he gives us an example of courage. He was the kind of preacher you never want as the rector of Aldridge. You wouldn't want him moving in a new rectory because he's seriously uncomfortable. He's one of God's weird friends that makes the faithful people of God think we're not quite there yet. John was not afraid to challenge the rulers and those in authority, even Herod. And sometimes our faith as Christians is not about, as one of my students said, a ministry of niceness but a ministry of sharpness that speaks into the nations and into the community and reminds people that the kingdom of God looks very different to civilized living. And John teaches us about humility. For when he recognized Jesus the Messiah, he recognized that as Jesus' ministry increased, John would have to take a back seat. He'd have to go into hiding. He'd have to retire, retreat. John's commitment to God, to the Christ, was total. He continued to preach, but actually he had to take a back seat to make room for Jesus. 
and for any of us knowing exactly when to step back and then doing it is often not easy. People struggle with retirement or growing older and it means decreasing sometimes and giving up control. And whoever, whoever takes over from me, I'm not just thinking about John Coyne here, might want to change things. They might be different than everything I've ever tried to build up. And that's hard to take on board. But that's exactly what John the Baptist did. And Jesus is in the business of changing things, changing me, changing you, changing churches, changing communities, changing nations. And this uncomfortable old bloke, John the Baptist, reminds us of that from beginning to end and won't let us get away with anything less. Let's be still in God's presence. Father, as we get into this Gospel of Luke, we pray that as we try to get our head around John the Baptist, we might understand that repentance is actually good news. It's about clearing out the clutter to make room for new life. Please help us so to hunger for new life that we might be prepared to part company with old ways. Thank you that in John the Baptist we've got a man of extraordinary courage. Help us to grow in courage as Christians and to speak the truth in love. And like John, help us to learn how to be humble, not to be like Uriah Heap, but to be people who are prepared to step aside that Jesus might be glorified, that we might be working on a team with people who've got different ideas to us, that we might even as a church here in Aldridge so be united as a body that we make room for difference. We make room for newness and strangeness and the life of the kingdom taking us in new directions and embracing it without fear. So Holy Spirit, will you teach us tonight as we come and receive bread and wine just what John has to say to each one of us.